I'm Rachel Tausendfreund, and this is Out of Order, a German Marshall Fund podcast where we discuss how the world was, is, and will be ordered. Listeners, I am here today with some exciting changes. We're going to create a spin-off podcast in the Out of Order family that will tackle the big geostrategic questions associated with the coronavirus and its aftermath. We're going to be looking at everything from how democracies and autocracies are tackling the virus to the short and long-term changes we might expect across societies, national governments, and international organizations. To help us do that, I'm also introducing two new hosts that I'm really excited to have on board. Julie Smith is Senior Advisor to the President of GMF and Director of our Asia Program. Hi, Julie. Hi, Rachel. And Derek Chalet, Executive Vice President of GMF and Senior Advisor for Security and Defense here. Hi, Derek. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Julie. So we're really excited to bring this weekly podcast to you to talk about the various aspects of the COVID crisis and what's coming next. And each week, we're going to bring to you someone who's been working on this issue on the front lines, thinking about the future, and has creative and interesting ideas. We're going to try to get the best and the brightest, both from the U.S. and Europe, from politics, intellectual life, the business sector, to have an interesting conversation with us once a week for a few minutes. And for out-of-order listeners who want their podcast with a little bit less of a COVID-19 focus, we're going to continue to run the normal out-of-order podcast about every two to three weeks in this feed with the kind of discussions and interviews about Europe, the U.S., order and disorder in the world that you're used to. Julie, you did our first Pandemic Pod interview. Yes, that's right, Rachel. Our first guest on the post-pandemic order is Senator Chris Murphy, Democrat from Connecticut. And so we were able to have a terrific conversation with him and touch on a number of different foreign policy implications in terms of how the coronavirus is having an impact not just in the United States, but around the world. And so we're excited for you to have a listen. We'll talk to everybody next week. Julie's off with the first interview. You know, an effective global response here involves being able to walk and chew gum at the same time. While we are protecting ourselves, it also makes sense to help other countries. Welcome to our first episode of the German Marshall Fund's new podcast, Post-Pandemic Order. It is my great pleasure to announce our first guest on this podcast, Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, who is a member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Welcome, Senator Murphy, and thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be the first guest. So, Senator, you've obviously been very busy ensuring that Americans across this country, but particularly your constituents, have what they need during this global crisis, global pandemic. But you've also been very active in recent days and weeks thinking through kind of a broader global response to the coronavirus and the implications for foreign policy. You just recently announced bipartisan legislation with Senator Mitt Romney to reaffirm America's commitment to global health security and reorient the United States towards a global response. And you also had an article recently in Foreign Policy about how the U.S. can better prepare for the next pandemic. So let's start there in terms of the U.S. global response. I guess let's back up and just talk about how do you assess our global response to date and, and what are the implications of that? 
Well, I, I feel kind of foolish uh, talking to you about uh, the global response necessary to prevent pandemics because you are, of course, an, an expert, one of our foremost experts in the subject. But um, <laughs> let me at least tease the conversation. Listen, we are just not set up today in the way we should be to be able to prevent a pandemic from reaching the United States. President Obama made several important changes to the way in which we interact with the rest of the world that helped put us in a better position. He stood up programming that assisted other nations in strengthening their public health systems to stop viruses and diseases before they reached the United States. He set up a coordinating council in the National Security Council to make sure that there was an interagency conversation happening at all times about stopping viruses again before they get to the United States. Uh, We had a program run through USAID that you know about that went out and collected virus and pathogen information called the PREDICT program so that we could start doing research on vaccines and treatments early rather than waiting until they reached the United States. Almost all of that was stood down by President Trump. President Trump dismantled much of that global anti-pandemic infrastructure around the world. But I will say that we have never, in my opinion, been properly resourced. Right now, we spend about $730 billion a year on the Department of Defense. That's on tanks and planes and aircraft carriers. We spend less than 1% of that on global public health. We're spending, Hmm. on average, every year about $12 billion on global public health. Half of that is PEPFAR, the AIDS program, which is an incredibly worthwhile expenditure, but only right. $6 billion is being spent on broader prophylactic services to make sure that these diseases don't reach the United States. So we have to stand back up what President Trump tore down. But then we just need to have a broader acknowledgement that we are misallocating our resources today. Yes, you know, we have to protect against conventional military threats to the United States, but no one in our country today would suggest that we should be spending 100 times as much money uh, on military defense as we are on pandemic defense, given what we're living through right now. Yeah, I guess the question is, do we have to kind of redefine this concept of security and think about it in broader terms? You know, traditionally, we've thought about security strictly, in my mind, in military, about how many jets we have or weapon systems. But it sounds like what you're saying is we need just a broader definition here to include lots of other threats. Well, you know, you've talked a lot about this as well. Um you know, the fact of the matter is the, the new emerging threats to the United States are not conventional military threats. You know, we had a foreign government attack our elections in 2016. We have environmental threats, climate change threats that are causing us to spend billions of dollars developing coastal defenses. And now we have this evidence of how devastating a, a virus can be. And so, yeah, to me, it has never made a lot of sense how we decide to spend our dollars. The fact that we take today have you know, more members of military bands, you know, the Army band, the Navy band, than we have diplomats in the State Department out around the world protecting us from disease and climate change and election interferers. So, yeah, I, I think it is about a sort of broader conversation about how we resource our defenses. And I think that, you know, there's other agencies besides the Department of Defense um, that protect this country. And one of them was your agency. And we need to do a better job of explaining that to people. Right. Now, Now, also on this question of global leadership and the U.S. global response, we had an announcement just earlier this week that the Trump administration has decided to halt payments to the World Health Organization. 
You issued a statement on that saying, ultimately, this is a decision that will make us less safe. Can you explain that to our listeners? Well, and I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts on this as well, because you've interacted with the WHO far more than I have. But listen, every international organization is imperfect. It is not easy to coordinate across dozens of different countries, try to negotiate between great powers, try to run big cross-border bureaucracies. And the WHO is amongst the those international organizations that needs reform. But it still fulfills critical missions that cannot be replaced and cannot be replicated by the United States alone. It still is the only global health organization that really is able to talk to every country in the world and to be able to convene conversations amongst traditional adversaries. It, frankly, made mistakes at the beginning of coronavirus, but it also did some things well. By the end of February, the WHO had produced 1.4 million tests. That is far more than the United States of America was able to produce by the end of February. And to me, it seems as if the president's decision to pull funding from the WHO has nothing to do with our security. It's just about his attempt to find scapegoats. He was the primary cheerleader of China and China's response during the early days. The WHO said good things as well, but they didn't say anything as nice as what Donald Trump said. And so it feels like he's trying to distract attention from some of the big mistakes he did make and is making and trying to put the WHO in the position of accepting all the blame. And so my feeling is that this is a moment to double down on our support for the WHO and use additional U.S. support as a lever to get them to make some reforms, to get them to respond more quickly to these epidemics as they emerge. That's the play here by pulling out All we do is effectively make our complaint a reality. President says, well, the WHO is too close to China. Well, guess what happens when you pull out all your funding? China steps in and fills that void. Um, And so I think we should be in the business of helping the WHO reform, not basically hand them over to other countries that will gladly accept the leadership role that, that we leave to others. I think that's right. It's an imperfect organization. Many of these organizations are, but ultimately they do a lot of good in the world. And we're in the middle of a crisis where we need the WHO more than ever. And so couldn't agree with you more. But that does bring me to another point and another question, and that's tied to China. We've seen a situation where China has showed up in Europe and in many other countries around the world, not just in Europe, eager to provide assistance in cases where it can fill a void where the U.S. is failing to provide assistance. So I guess the question is, as China tries to portray itself as the de facto global leader and maybe distract us from the way it initially botched its handling of the virus, what could be some of the long-term implications of this? I mean, do you see our European allies viewing China as a more reliable partner? I mean, play this out a little bit. Where do you, where do you think this goes? So you're right that China is trying to use this uh, enormous aid effort to places that have been ravaged by coronavirus as an attempt to try to make people forget where it started and their very fatal decision to not share more information earlier. But, you know, frankly, their deployment of aid to Europe and other places around the world is in keeping with their broader strategy of using their economic largesse, their ability to do economic and health deals with other countries as a mechanism to be able to build their influence. 
we we go occasionally to these big international conferences where you've got foreign ministers and defense ministers um, at the biggest of those, the Munich Security Conference this February. The entire conversation was about China. It really wasn't about the United States anymore. It was about how do we manage China? How do we get what we need from China? Because there are more offers to help. European countries, African countries, Asian countries, South American countries from China today than there are from the United States. And so, you know, an effective global response here involves being able to walk and chew gum at the same time. We are a smart enough and generous enough country to understand that while we are protecting ourselves, it also makes sense to help other countries defeat the virus, not just because that will help build the alliance, but because if we beat the virus in the United States, but it sticks around in Sweden or in Italy, then we really haven't beaten it because it'll just be right back on our shores. So I know folks, you know, in this America First movement think that you can just put up walls and close borders and protect ourselves. When it comes to a virus, you can't. Your ongoing response, not just your preventative um, approach, your ongoing response to an existing outbreak has to be global um, just because if you don't stop it everywhere, you're not really stopping it anywhere. Yeah. Sticking to the subject of Europe, uh, just for a few minutes, one of the interesting observations about this crisis, and this isn't just happening in Europe, but let's, let's stick to Europe and let's stick to Hungary for a minute, has been kind of the way in which certain leaders have used this crisis to consolidate power or instigate some sort of big power grab in the middle of the crisis. And we saw that with Viktor Orban in Hungary. How do you look at that in terms of our ability? I mean, we're all hunkered down. We're trying to grapple with the crisis. We're right in the eye of the storm, many of us. Europe's still in crisis. The United States is grappling with it. Do we have the ability to lift up our heads and think about a country like Hungary right now? What should we be doing or saying about that or preventing other moves like that going forward? Yeah, and I think it's always worthwhile just to remember why we care about democracies abroad. We care about protecting democracy abroad because all of our experience tells us that um, the more democracies there are, the safer the United States is because democracies tend not to go to war with each other. And so we always are at risk of being drawn into regional conflicts as happened in World War I and World War II and Vietnam. And so as we promote the spread of democracy, we are reducing the likelihood that there are going to be wars and conflicts overseas that will eventually entangle the United States. But we also know that the tactics that are being developed by these would-be dictators um, can easily be replicated and deployed in the United States. Now, listen, I've argued for a while that Donald Trump is not smart enough or disciplined enough to be able to transition the United States from a democracy to an autocracy, but he's kind of, you know, showing you the playbook upon which someone might use to make that happen. And so you do have to sort of raise issue with moves being made by people like Viktor Orban, because if he gets away with it, it's just a little bit easier for it to be used in the United States. So yes, even even during this crisis, we should have a State Department and a White House that is raising issues with the attempt by the Orban government to try to um, remove democratic checks and balances. And frankly, you know, by doing that, ultimately, I think it's in the interest of the long-term defense of the country. And unfortunately, Orban 
sort of was in the position to do this because he had been slowly getting away with smaller moves away from democracy because in general, the Trump administration has just, you know, stopped standing up for participatory democracy as Orban has done it, as Erdogan has done it, as Duterte has done it in the Philippines. Um, They just don't get much pushback from the United States. And as you know, that's what we do. We can't stop a democracy from transitioning to autocracy, but the pushback we offer does effectively chill the interest or enthusiasm of these individuals in these governments to move as fast as they would like in the wrong direction. So ultimately, do you take kind of a pessimistic view on how this crisis is going to shape democracies? I mean, of course, authoritarians are running around. You know, you can see the Chinese and, and well, mostly the Chinese, but a few other leaders saying, look, we are better equipped. Our system can respond. We can shut down, you know, quarantine 60 million people in a heartbeat. And democracies right now seem a little sloppy and messy and difficult to manage and get the assistance to the people who need it. I mean, does it make you feel a little bit pessimistic about this as a the, the democratic model generally? Or will we learn from this, fortify our resilience? I mean, how do, how do you think about it in the longer term? Yeah, it's a fascinating question, right? I mean, I guess I'm never pessimistic about democracy. I mean, I still- <laughs> That's am, good. <laughs> I st- right. <laughs> I'm still a believer that, that, that this is the, the form of government that people will choose once they've you know dispensed with all the alternative. But I certainly worry uh, for democracy because it is true that there are built-in inefficiencies in a democracy um, that make it hard to respond to emergencies. And so what smart democracies like the United States have done is to prepare for that inevitability of a national emergency when you need to vest more power in the executive branch. And so we did that. We passed a law called the Defense Production Act where we gave the president certain powers where he could basically take control of all the manufacturing in the country, the supply chain to make sure, you know, this was, I think, initially designed for wartime to make sure that in wartime we had enough ships and planes and guns to be able to protect ourselves. But it applies to the fight against the virus. And I guess what worries me is that this president, who sort of talks like a strong man, who likes to pretend sometimes that he's not bound by democratic norms, isn't even willing to take the powers that are given to him that are supposed to cure for the built-in inefficiencies of democracies at a moment of crisis. And so I'm generally worried for democracy because we are inherently less efficient during moments of emergency. But I'm really worried for the United States because this president seems unwilling to sort of accept the emergency powers that he's been given. Yeah. Well, maybe one last question. Again, thinking out on the horizon, say we have a vaccine and we're moving through kind of the post-pandemic environment. You know, I think back to 9-11 and how much that crisis, that tragedy defined U.S. foreign policy. It really served as the defining feature. Much of what we did in U.S. foreign policy in the years after 9-11 revolved around terrorism and counterterrorism measures. And so I guess the question for many of us in the field of foreign policy and experts like yourself is, Could we imagine a scenario where this particular global pandemic 
not only alters kind of the global health community, but really shapes U.S. foreign policy going forward, that this could be the defining feature of our national security and our foreign policy going forward. Is that fair to think about that in in those terms? Or am I maybe overstating it a little bit? How do, how do you look at it? Yeah, I think it has to be a pivot moment for American foreign policy. Um, and I've begun discussions with Republicans and Democrats about how we effectuate that change. As you mentioned, Senator Romney and I have introduced legislation that would establish a new council at the uh, at the NSC. Senator Rubio and I have introduced legislation that would begin to set up a process to bring some of our healthcare manufacturing back to the United States. But none of those reforms would be comparable to what we did in 2002 after 9-11. And so I'm attracted to the idea of having a a political commission take a look at this that would sort of be coincidental to what I think will be a change in administration. Uh, and so if that new administration in January has a set of recommendations from an apolitical group of experts, I think that would be really helpful. Uh, Vice President Biden uh, yesterday sort of teased the idea of perhaps establishing a new cabinet post that is in charge of overseeing pandemic prevention and preparedness. I think that's a worthwhile conversation to have. I think we have to think about whether we want to create a new department or bureaucracy or just better coordinate what we have. But going back to the beginning of the conversation, Julie, what we definitely know is that we just aren't doing enough. We definitely know that we just don't have the resources allocated necessary to protect us, either domestically or around the world. So at the very least, in the short run, in this next budget, we can triple, quadruple, quintuple the dollars that we are investing in pandemic prevention and preparedness. And then those bigger structural reforms maybe can be ready for the next administration. Yeah, I appreciate that you mentioned not only the importance of allocating resources, but those structural questions, because I think it's both. There's a lot to this equation and a lot to gnaw on for sure in in the future once we get past this current crisis. Well, listen, Senator Murphy, let me thank you again so much for joining us, for taking the time. Thanks also to you for everything you're doing to keep Americans and especially your own constituents back home safe and sound. Please be safe yourself. Stay at home uh, like the rest of us and hope to talk to you again in the future. Well, thanks for all your great leadership and your work uh, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks for having me. Post-Pandemic Order is a podcast from the German Marshall Fund of the United States. It's produced and hosted by Julie Smith, Derek Cholet, and me, Rachel Tausenfreund. Zachary Tarrant is, as always, our sound engineer and boss man. 